Welcome to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. My name is Justin Wheeler. I am the preaching pastor for Cornerstone. And today we are in week 31 of our journey through the Heidelberg Catechism. Today I'm going to be talking to you about questions 83, 84, and 85. And and the topic for this week is is something a little bit odd, perhaps. Uh, Maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't, but today we're going to be talking about the keys of the kingdom. Now that's a phrase that some of you are going to be familiar with, uh, not least of which is because we talked about it a little bit last week. Last week we read in answer to question 82 that according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. Now, last week we were talking about the fact that we have a responsibility not to allow everyone to come to the table of the Lord to you know, receive the sacraments, uh, but only those who are exhibiting true faith and repentance. And But, but then in the midst of that response, uh, in, in helping us understand our responsibility to bar access to the table for some people, there's this, this phrase about the official use of the keys of the kingdom. Now, what in the world is that all about? Well, quite simply, the the idea of the keys of the kingdom has to do with a particular authority that has been given to the people of God, to the church, to withhold from the table and from really from fellowship within the body such people that fall into the category of being unrepentant or unbelieving. But where did this phrase, keys of the kingdom, come from? I mean, it all sounds very mysterious. It all sounds, you know, somewhat important. But what does it mean? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. So our focus today is going to be on the keys of the kingdom. And we're going to learn about this through questions 83, 84, and 85. So let's look at question 83. What are the keys of the kingdom? Right? Straight out of the bat. Um, And the answer is this. The preaching of the holy gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both preaching and discipline open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. Okay, so first of all, where does this language that's being used in the catechism, where does this language of the keys of the kingdom come from? Well, some of you already know this. It comes directly from Jesus, and it was first discussed with the disciples as a symbolic description of the authority that Jesus was giving or had given to his church. And so in Matthew chapter 16, uh, starting in verse 16, uh, well, in, in this whole section here in Matthew 16, Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples. And he asks them the question, you know, who is everybody saying that I am? What do, what do the people think about me? And there's all these different answers. Some of them believed he was a prophet. Some of them believed he was uh, like Re- Elijah reborn, which was part of a prophecy that was made. Uh, and Jesus turned to the disciples and he said, okay, but what do you say about me? Who do you understand me to be? And Simon Peter replied in this way, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus answered him in Matthew 16, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this is a, a passage that we're all very familiar with. It's a passage that talks about 
how Jesus is going to build his church, and we believe as Protestants that he's going to build his church upon the rock of not Peter's life, but Peter's confession. The Catholic Church thinks it's about Peter's life and his bloodline and all this kind of stuff going all the way down to the the popes and pontiffs and things like that. But we believe that Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church upon your confession that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Right? Wonderful imagery of what Christ is going to do. But then he says this, Verse 19, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So right after Jesus says, I'm going to build my church upon this confession of who I am, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, which is in some ways it's metaphorical, but then I'm going to give to you, my followers, my disciples, I'm going to give to you the keys to bind and loose. Now, what is this all about? Well, the imagery, I mean, the imagery here is is clear. Jesus is going to build his church upon the truth that Peter confessed, and Jesus is going to give authority to the church to open the doors or or gates, if you will, and to close those gates. The door to the kingdom of heaven swings in both directions. It opens to allow people in, and it closes to keep people out. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus's mission, and why does he even use this language? Well, Uh, There's a history here. Um, Many ancient peoples believed that heaven and hell were closed by gates to which certain deities and angelic beings had keys. And so even in going all the way back into Greek mythology, uh, Pluto kept the keys to Hades. And and even in Jewish writings, uh, Jewish writings near the time of Jesus give God the keys to the abode of the dead, what we call, um, you know, Hades, right? And then later on, in the book of the Revelation, John sees Christ holding the keys to death in Hades. And so this imagery, this kind of mysterious imagery of access into the spiritual realm is going to be barred by a gate, and it's going to, someone's going to hold on to the keys. And so Jesus is using that language to let his disciples know that you have access to this. You are going to be the ones binding and loosing. And these words, binding and loose, well... They were used by rabbis near the time of Christ to declare someone under a ban, someone who had done something wrong and was being, in in some ways, punished for it. They were bound, the binding part of that. And then they would, when you relieve the ban, they were loosed. They could go free again. And sometimes this referred to expulsion or reinstatement at a synagogue. At other times, Binding and loosing indicated consignment to God's judgment or acquittal from God's judgment. And and so the power of the keys, the binding and loosing of which Jesus is talking, it's about spiritual authority. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving this authority to you, my disciples. He even said in, in another place in John chapter 20, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So this idea of the disciples of Christ having a certain authority um, to declare things that are true and to declare things that are binding, well, that's what he's talking about here. And the catechism 
is trying to help us understand more specifically how these keys function in the life of the church. They function not because we get to decide whatever we want to decide. We get to punish people that we don't like and we get to reward people that we do like. No, no, that's not what this is about. The, the, the function of these keys happen through the preaching of the gospel and through the administration of church discipline. Okay, so how does this work? How does the preaching of the gospel open and close the kingdom? And how does the administration of church discipline open and close the kingdom? Well, that's question 84 and 85. How does preaching the gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? Well, here's the answer. According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of what Christ has done, truly forgives all their sins. So not only is the preaching of the gospel one of the keys of the kingdom, it is also, you may know this, it's one of the marks of a true church. Historically and since the time of the Reformation, uh, church leaders have understood the marks of a true church to be defined in three ways. Number one, the true preaching of God's Word. Number two, the right administration of the sacraments. And then number three, the practice of church discipline. We teach this in our covenant class, that the marks of a true church are defined as the true preaching of God's Word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the practice of church discipline. And as a church, we want to be faithful in all three of these marks. And, and it's not a coincidence that we looked at the sacraments uh, over the past few weeks and that now we've begun to look at preaching the Word and discipline because all of these things hold together, both in church history and especially in uh, church doctrine and catechesis. Uh, these things hold together as responsibilities given to the followers of Christ, the body of Christ. See, we have a responsibility to preach the Word of God faithfully. And when we do so, uh, our preaching will not fail to be punctuated by the clear teaching of the gospel. So our job as a church is to declare the whole counsel of God in proclaiming his word, Old Testament and New Testament. But the main story, the, the climax and the pinnacle of all of Scripture is the gospel message. And so if we're going to be preaching the word of God faithfully, then we are going to be preaching in such a way that we highlight the gospel every single time. John Calvin stated that it is not to be doubted that the church of God exists wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard. Martin Luther made the distinction that the true preaching of the word consisted of the gospel being rightly taught. Now, he would have understood and we understand that the gospel being rightly taught is that um, it, you are by grace are you saved through faith in Christ. So by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, and for the glory of God alone. And, and what Luther was doing and what we're trying to do is we're distinguishing for a Protestant understanding of the preaching of the gospel from a Catholic understanding of the gospel. And that's very much where the Heidelberg is, is making that distinction. So when the gospel is preached faithfully, how does it bind and loose? Well, when the gospel is preached faithfully, it is a summons for all to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. And all who accept Christ in true faith will receive forgiveness for all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is open to them. But to all those who reject the gospel, who refuse to believe and repent, well, 
to them the kingdom is closed. And so we have the second half of the answer to question 84. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the anger of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. So here's what that means. Preachers like myself, like me, have been granted a certain authority, and with that authority comes a responsibility to be bold and faithful and thorough. We must preach the gospel to all without discrimination or differentiation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, according to Romans 10.13. But I, we, must also preach that apart from repentance and faith, no man will be saved. Preaching the gospel to all is like opening the gate to the kingdom of God and all who will come and all who will call on his name and all who will believe and repent can be saved. But all who reject him, all who refuse the gospel, all who refuse to repent and believe, salvation is not theirs. So preaching the gospel is the first key and it both opens and closes. But the second key is church discipline. Now, again, remember, it's one of those three marks of a church. The, 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 church, the discipline of unrepentant uh, or unbelieving people, right? That's part of what our responsibility is. But how is church discipline opening and closing the kingdom of heaven, right? That's question 85. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? And here's the answer. According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, in other words, they they call themselves Christians and we recognize them to have been Christians because they professed um, faith at some point, they were baptized into the church, but now they profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives and after repeated and loving counsel, refuse to abandon their errors and wickedness. And after being reported to the church, that is, to its officers, they fail to respond also to their admonition. Such persons, the officers exclude from the Christian fellowship by withholding the sacraments from them, and God himself excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Now, I like that last phrase because it, it we don't truly know. We don't truly understand what's going on in the heart of an individual. We can only see by what they, they declare and how they live, whether or not they are being faithful and walking in step with the gospel message. It's, it's God himself who excludes them from the kingdom, not us. But we do have a responsibility, and, and we have a responsibility to employ this kind of discipline. So as a church pastor, as an elder, there are few responsibilities that weigh more heavily on my soul than this one, than church discipline. I mean, it's a weighty responsibility. And personally, I am thankful that I do not bear its weight alone. God is good to instruct us to appoint multiple elders, pastors, in every church. He, he tells, uh, Paul told Titus that in Titus 1.5. And, and the reason that is, is because by the plurality of men, in leadership, these responsibilities can be undertaken and the burden can be borne together. So the practice of church discipline, um, just so we're clear, it does not refer exclusively to the excommunication of wayward believers. But when viewed as a whole, it refers to the, the careful exercise of biblical leadership within the church. So within the context of discipline, we understand that the Word of God is to be active among us, 
making us more like Christ, equipping us for the work of the saints, exhorting, correcting, rebuking, and training us in righteousness. And, and discipline is aimed to restore a sinning believer. It's, it's aimed at deterring sin within the body so that we can protect the purity of the church. And, and so discipline is not just kicking someone out because they're failing to repent, but it's also that, that instruction that is happening in a very formative way to help people to walk with Christ and grow in maturity. And so you can think of church discipline in two ways, and we do as a church. We think about it in a formative way, and we think about it in a corrective way. Formative discipline takes place all the time because it involves the regular and faithful building up of the body. So for us at Cornerstone, formative discipline is happening in Sunday school when when we're learning the Word of God and we're learning how to be faithful to Christ and we're learning uh, all the things that Christ has commanded. It's happening in Bible study when we're doing the same things. It's happening in worship as we're singing and we're reading catechism and we're reading scripture and we're confessing our sins and we're remembering the gospel and we're hearing the word of God preached. And all of those things are forming us. They're shaping us to be more and more like Christ. So formative discipline, it takes place in community groups when we fellowship with one another and our lives uh, overlap. It's taking place in prayer prayer meetings. It it is the overall process of the church to disciple believers and help them grow in Christian maturity. That's formative discipline. But corrective discipline is a specific type of teaching. It's a specific type of discipline. It involves correction. It involves admonition. It involves rebuke. And this kind of discipline occurs when a brother or sister is either believing or living in contradiction to the clear teachings of Christ. And Jesus outlines for us the way that he would have us walk through this in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If someone uh, sins against us, we, we go and we seek to be reconciled. We declare to them their fault and we seek to reconcile them to us. If they refuse, then we take um, two witnesses, two or more witnesses. And if they refuse then, then we present them to the church. And if they refuse to respond faithfully and repentantly to the church, then Jesus says you, you let them be to you as a tax collector and a sinner. You, in other words, you, you remove them from the fellowship, the assembly of believers. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, it's this process of seeking over and over to reconcile a person back to faithfulness and away from error. And in some cases, that repentance, that reconciliation, it never comes. And it is at those times that it is the responsibility of the church and her leaders to remove a person from fellowship within the body and to bar their way to the Lord's table. And in this way, The kingdom is being closed to them. But that's really not the end goal. As the final line in Answer 85 shows us, the final line in the answer says this, Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of His church. You see, church discipline is a responsibility It's something that we are to be faithful in, but the goal of church discipline is not to bind someone out of the kingdom, but it's to show them by their sin that they need Christ. The goal is reform, genuine reform in their lives. Full restoration is what we're after. It's what we're praying for. And we're called to close the doors to the kingdom in the hopes that repentance and faith will result. And when they do, we throw the doors open again. And we receive them back in, in repentance and faith, back into fellowship and back to the table of the Lord.
And I know this is heady stuff. This is weighty stuff. It's important, though. The preaching of the gospel and the right use of or right administration of church discipline, this is what we're called to. And by so doing, we are wielding these keys that Christ has given to us. We are wielding the spiritual authority that Christ has entrusted to us as his body. Okay. So next week, we're going to continue in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism, and I hope that you will join me again as we look at Lord's Day 32. Next week, we only have two questions, question 86 and 87, and I look forward to working through those with you next week. Now, if you want to learn more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at CBCWiley, and you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstonewiley. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play to stay up to date on all the new content. Thank you so much for listening.